Game Barrett. Our story today comes from the notoriously haunted Fenland of eastern England, and it takes us back in time to the almost forgotten counterculture of the early 1970s. My name is Elgin Barrett, and I should mention this is a tale told in two parts, both available right now, so you don't need to wait to find out what happens. The suspense might be unbearable. Elgin himself steps up to the microphone for this one. It's called The Barred Iron Gate. I'm making this recording because this is my last chance to set the record straight. The police believe they have a strong case against me, and the circumstances of my arrest were so compromising, so embarrassing, that no jury will see me in a sympathetic light. And yet, I am not the fiend, the maniac, the pervert that I've been made out to be. If someone would actually listen, they would realise that I am entirely innocent of all charges. But I have no expectation of a fair hearing. They've closed their minds, these people. They are determined to see me punished. And so this recording is a last resort and and probably a hopeless one. But if you should chance upon it, I ask you, please, to hear me out. Because it is my last and dearest wish that someone, somewhere, will one day understand the truth of what happened. But to begin, I must take you back. I must take you back. I must take you back. I must take you back to the summer of 1974. I had just finished the last of my final exams in medicine at the University of Cambridge. I remember that particular afternoon well. It had been a tough paper, and I came out of the exam room somewhat shaky and nauseous after the intensity of the effort. My eyes smarted from the sudden exposure to sunlight, and I took off my spectacles and blinked at the blurred shapes around me. And then a hand clapped me on the shoulder. "'Well done, Mayfield,' said a fruity male voice. "'Will you be joining us for drinks?' My heart sank. It was the last thing I felt like. But another voice, a shrill female one, joined in. "'Come on, Timothy. Surely you can grace us with your presence on this of all days?' I fumbled with my spectacles, put them back on, and brought their faces into focus. I mean, for once in your life, you really do have nothing better to do, said the young man with a broad smile. And of course, he was right. It was an extraordinary idea that there was no more revision, no essays to write, no tests, no tasks for the first time since... Well, since when? Probably since my parents had first told me that when I grew up, I was destined to be a doctor. The woman took my arm. Come on, Timothy she said. No excuses. We're not letting you get away this time. And out of weariness more than anything else, I gave in and allowed myself to be led away. A trestle table covered with a very well-ironed, very white cloth had been set up on a lawn at the back of one of the colleges. On top was a large tureen of pims, next to several neat lines of upturned wine glasses. Someone ladled out the drinks, and we stood in the circle, the twelve of us, faces all beaming at each other, basking in a glow of satisfaction, a job well done, a mountain climbed. All, that is, except me. 
I had never liked these people, although I suppose they were the closest I had to what you might call friends. They did their best, I knew that, but I resented their attempts to include me. I envied them their insouciance, their self-assurance, their casual brilliance. Because I wasn't like them, I was a plodder. My university career had been one of tedious, sober, dutiful rectitude. Nothing had ever come easily. I had always had to swat, to cram, to put the hours in. It had made me the dullard I undeniably was. I felt a nudge from the person next to me and snapped out of my reverie. I was just saying, what about you, Tim? Any plans for the next few weeks? I was uh, startled by the sudden requirement to converse. Uh, well, um, I think, I said, playing for time. Uh, yes, I, I think I will uh, go out and explore. What do you have in mind? The Kalahari Desert or the wastes beyond Midsummer Common? <laughs> the, uh, the latter, I rather think, I said, which was met with an indulgent chuckle as if I had made a witty riposte for once. But as the words came out of my mouth, I realised that they might perhaps contain the germ of a plan. Because I had given no thought whatsoever to what I would do when the exams were finished, and my accommodation was paid for until the end of the month. So, yes, why not? Perhaps I really would go out and explore. In all my time at Cambridge... I'd seldom strayed from the well-trodden path between lab and library and lecture theatre. The city beyond was a total mystery, and it seemed a shame to leave the place behind and know so little of it. The conversation had moved on. One of them was outlining his plans for a lengthy hike through the Alps to general murmurs of admiration. As I had anticipated, I was finding this all horribly uncomfortable. Could I get away with leaving now? I must have been there at least twenty minutes... I thought perhaps I might. I drained my glass and set it on the table, and then, to a general groan, I made my excuses and scuttled off across the lawn, burning with embarrassment, but all the same, much relieved to get away. Now that I had a plan, or a plan of sorts, I was eager to put it into practice. I had a good night's sleep and woke early next day. I didn't know quite what I was trying to achieve, but that was the point, I suppose. It was time to allow myself a little freedom. I would meander, step outside myself, and try to see the world a little differently. Who knows? I might even surprise myself. I wasn't quite sure how to set about it, though. And so for the first couple of days, I simply pounded the streets, the mean Victorian terraces just outside the city centre, the drab 1930s semis beyond. At lunchtime, I would stop at a greasy spoon for lunch and in the evening pop into a street corner pub for a pint. As undergraduates, we'd been warned against these places. We were expected to stick to our college bar or the respectable establishments in the city centre. As a result, the pubs beyond held a certain lurid fascination. I remember how exotic their names sounded. The Locomotive, the Ancient Druids, the Zebra... Places where real people went, where real things happened, where fights might spill out onto the street on a Saturday night. To my disappointment, though, I discovered they were quiet, tired, humdrum places, catering mostly to solitary drinkers who had nowhere else to go after work. In fact, I was starting to find my quest rather depressing, when on the third evening I happened upon the Ring of Bells, an Irish pub, I supposed, from the shamrock stickers in the window. 
The barmaid got down from her stool as I pushed my way through the door. She stood behind the beer pumps and looked at me in a way I found slightly off-putting. There was something familiar in her gaze, almost as if she had been expecting me. Did I know her from somewhere? She certainly didn't look like any of the young women I normally came across. She was about my age, fashionably dressed in a cheesecloth smock and jeans, with long, waist-length, raven-black hair. "'What'll you have?' she said almost too quietly to hear. She had a pale, narrow face and the most startling bright blue eyes. "'What was it about her?' I was not the kind who normally paid much attention to women, nor they to me. "'There's no rush,' she said, and I realised I'd been slow to respond because she started to back away. "'Oh, I'm sorry,' I said. "'I'll have a Guinness.' But she must have been disconcerted by our encounter too, because she made a complete hash of pouring it, producing a large head of white foam that took up nearly half the glass. An older woman, the landlady, I assumed, bustled over to sort things out. "'Ach, it's the first day,' she explained with a twinkle. "'We all have to start somewhere, eh?' When they were done, I picked up the pint and sauntered through to the back room to get the measure of the place. There wasn't much happening, an empty pool table, a group of seven or eight young folk laughing in the corner, and there was a jukebox. I knew nothing about music, but for want of anything better to do, I set my pint on the windowsill above and studied the selection intently. I knew that a lot of store was set by the kind of band you liked, and so I wondered whether I could choose something that would make the right impression. But the names meant nothing to me. The Pink Fairies, Uriah Heap, Quintessence. In the end, I took potluck, dropped a coin in the slot, and tapped a code at random. It was a song I'd never heard before. It started with a few insistent, distorted notes, and then a snarling, nasal vocal. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw a couple of chaps from the corner table turn my way and nod approvingly. A few minutes later, one of them struck up a conversation with me at the bar. He was a big Scottish lad called Kelvin, with shoulder-length hair and a tatty denim jacket. He was a painter and decorator by trade, he told me, but with a sideline in bass guitar. And I had pretty decent taste in music, so he said. Was he making fun of me? I couldn't be sure, but I went along with it. I asked him which bands he liked, and as he reeled off a long list, I professed to admire each and every one. And that was it. Why don't you come over and join us? he suggested. They were a friendly bunch. The woman on my right was a freelance journalist who wrote for a magazine I'd never heard of. Next to her was a Colombian woman who taught Spanish part-time in one of the local comprehensives. And there were others who I didn't chat to, but who nodded at me agreeably and included me when it came their turn to buy a round. As the evening went on, it became clear that the person at the heart of the group was a fellow called Roy. It hadn't occurred to me at first because he was so unprepossessing to look at. Thick pebble glasses, long, slightly greasy brown hair. And there was something vaguely unhygienic about him too. He wore a once white caftan stained with droppings of various kinds of food and drink. But the longer you stayed in his company, the more you realised he had charisma. The way his spectacles enlarged the eagerness of his eyes, the intensity with which he leaned in and grinned, it drew you in. And he had a knack of weaving the conversation together, making everyone feel included, even someone as new and gauche as me. After closing time, we all stood outside on the pavement for a while, and I remember feeling rather pleased with myself. I hardly even knew their names, and yet I felt comfortable with these people. And when Roy said they were there most nights and hoped they'd see me again, he sounded like he meant it. 
and so next night I was back. It wasn't as if anything special happened. I hung around the jukebox with Kelvin for a while, and he told me about his favourite bands all over again. I was challenged to a game of pool by one of his workmates and got soundly thrashed four times in a row. And towards the end of the night, the girl from the bar came over and sat with us, the one with the long black hair who'd served me the previous evening. I didn't have the courage to talk to her, but I kept on stealing glances across. We held some kind of significance for each other. I was sure of it, but I couldn't quite put my finger on what it might be. I was there again the following night, and by Friday I was so much a part of things that halfway through the evening Roy tapped me on the shoulder and ushered me outside for a private chat. I don't know if you're interested, he said, but we've got some uh, tabs for tomorrow night. I was taken aback. Tabs? He half raised an eyebrow. Acid? LSD? Right, I said, trying not to look too shocked. I just mentioned it because I thought you might, um, you know. I didn't know what to say. You don't mind me asking, do you, he said. But you seem kind of open-minded. Well, well, yes, of course, I said, I am. They're a quid each. It's a pretty good price. I realised at that point that I wasn't just taken aback. I was also rather flattered. But where? We'll drive out to the fens in a couple of cars after closing time tomorrow night. There'll be no one around. His eyes bulged at me through his spectacles as he waited for a response. What do you think? Did I dare? I hesitated. A little voice somewhere in my head was saying that if I was serious about really doing something different, there would never be a better chance than this. But no, come on. What was I thinking? Of course I didn't dare. I was on the brink of a medical career, which I'd worked for my whole life. If I were caught, well, well, it didn't bear thinking about. It's all right, said Roy, sensing my awkwardness. No pressure. Just let me know by last orders. I wrestled with it for the rest of the evening. The thing was, I wasn't just flattered. I was intrigued. Illegal drugs were not something I'd encountered before, but I'd read about them, in particular about LSD. Before it was made illegal, they'd used it in psychiatric hospitals for the treatment of psychosis, depression, addiction, that kind of thing. And as far as I understood, it had been remarkably successful. But I won't pretend it was professional curiosity alone that piqued my interest. I'd heard the extravagant claims that people made for it, that it was a life-changing, almost religious experience. Well, I took that with a pinch of salt, but all the same, there was some kind of devil in me that, to my astonishment, meant I was seriously tempted. At the end of the evening, I caught up with Roy outside the gents. Thanks for the offer, I said. It's all right, he said. Sorry if I embarrassed you. He turned away, but I reached out and caught his sleeve. I'll join you, if I may, I said. His face creased into a big, crooked smile. Cool. And so, the following night, I found myself jammed into Roy's beat-up old Humber. There must have been five of us in the back, along with another three squashed next to Roy on the bench seat in the front. It was a warm night, the windows were open, and Roy had his radio tuned to a pirate station, with the tinny speakers cranked up as loud as they would go. People sang along, they smoked, they passed the bottle of wine from hand to hand. It was totally unlike any journey I had ever made before. We drove for about 45 minutes and then turned off the road and bumped along a rough track before coming to a halt. This is it, said Roy. We tumbled out, 
everyone jabbering with the excitement of it all, I looked around and saw that it was a spot as remote as you could wish for, not so much as a light to be seen in any direction. Kelvin came over and draped an arm around my shoulder. Isn't this perfect, pal? he said. I agreed it was. A few minutes later, another set of headlights approached. It was the freelance journalist I'd spoken to the first night with some more friends. Five, maybe six of them. It was hard to keep count. Roy put the car radio on again, and some of the women got up and started to sway around in the headlights. Kelvin and I squatted down on our haunches and watched as he told me a long story which I only half listened to. I was starting to get anxious, and I wasn't quite sure what we were waiting for. And then the headlights of a third car appeared at the bottom of the track. Roy stood up and switched the music off. "'This'll be Gregory,' he announced. "'Gregory,' someone whispered enigmatically, was the man. A stylish little Alfa Romeo spider came to a halt, and Gregory got out of the passenger seat. He was late twenties and diminutive, perhaps not much more than five foot five, with long brown hair parted in the centre and kept in place by a braided headband. He moved into the pool of light cast by the headlamps, and looked around, squinting slightly. I could see now that he was barefoot and wore a scruffy beige linen suit with no shirt underneath. Nice, he said, nodding a few times, and then he embarked on a speech that he seemed to have given plenty of times before. The gist was that the drug was top quality, tried and tested. We had nothing to worry about and he delivered it well. He had a slow, sibilant way of speaking, but with a confidence that was almost hypnotic. But if anyone does have a problem, he concluded, you should know that I am right here for you. I'm going to stay completely straight tonight. Annabelle, over there, same. He indicated a young blonde woman, sitting on the bonnet of the spider, with a rather detached expression on her face. But there won't be any problems, okay? I'll guarantee it. Then he came round and handed each of us a tiny blue microdot. Have an amazing night, he said, and withdrew into the shadows. The others were intent on partying, but that was not why I was there. When the moment was right, I slipped away. I made my way across the fields until I was out of earshot and found a spot to settle down. I brought along a notebook to capture my impressions. As I felt the effect of the drug ripple through me, I started to record my thoughts. It was no more than a few words at first. Then an unusual observation or a resonant phrase occurred to me, and I scribbled some more. Things I had only glimpsed before I suddenly saw clearly. I made connections. Whole texts scrolled before my eyes. I trawled the depths of my earliest memories. And without even realising what I was doing, I found I was covering pages and pages with doodles and diagrams and a scrawl that became increasingly illegible as my hands struggled to keep pace with my teeming thoughts. Eventually... I had to abandon the attempt. I set my pen aside, lay back on the hard, stony ground and stared into the night sky in astonishment. I shan't bore you with an account of exactly what I experienced, but it was as if an entire epoch of my life had been crammed into just a few short hours. The dullest, most obscure details of the world were suddenly radiant, animate, bursting with potential. 
My mind bubbled with thoughts, brimmed with ideas. I felt extraordinarily alive in a way I never had before. But at a certain point, the sky began to grey in anticipation of the dawn, and I realised the effect of the drug was diminishing. I was suddenly cold. I forced myself to my feet and started to wander back to where the cars were parked. After a few paces, though, I became totally disoriented. I blundered onwards and came to a ring of beech trees on a very slight rise in the ground. From there, I could see out across the fields in all directions. I scanned around me for the others, gripped by a suffocating anxiety that they had left without me. Surely not. I whirled around. And then my eye settled on a drainage dike, about fifty yards away. The whole area was crisscrossed with them. But something was not quite right about this one. I had the impression that a long, thin object was floating just below the surface. I moved a few steps closer. At one end there was a vaguely circular black smudge. I was aware of my mind whirring, seeking patterns the way you do when you look for shapes in the clouds. And as things resolved, I came to realise that I was looking at a human body face down. The smudge, her long black hair fanned out around her head. It was the body of a woman. I closed my eyes and massaged my temples. Was I actually seeing this, or was this the drug? It was the kind of trick it might play, I knew that. I edged closer still. It was hard to see in the half-light, but I was becoming increasingly convinced that my eyes were not deceiving me. And then I heard voices, two male voices, talking in low, urgent tones and coming rapidly in my direction. I withdrew into the shelter of the trees. They stopped about halfway between me and the figure in the dike, and I could see now that one of them was Roy and the other Gregory. Christ, I don't believe it, hissed Gregory. There was nothing in the slightest relax or hypnotic about his tone now. You see, Roy was saying, you see, I, I didn't just imagine it, did I? Someone needs to go and get some help. Don't be an idiot, said Gregory. What the hell good would it do? But we have to, we have to. Listen to me, Roy. You're still coming down. One of us needs to think logically, and that person had better be me, right? But we have to do something, said Roy, and there was a crack in his voice as if he might break down and sob. Look, shut up and listen, said Gregory sharply. There's nothing anyone can do for her, all right? So we have to weigh the risks. If we just go ahead and tell the authorities, that's it. All our lives are ruined, every single one of us. And to what end? What's done is done. Do you see that? Yes, gulped Roy. And if we just leave her like this, well, it won't be long till someone finds her. And then what? It'll be in all the newspapers. Tracking us down will become a national sport. So so what do we do? Whispered Roy, shit, what do we do? He gulped back another sob. Oh, don't be so bloody pathetic, said Gregory. We just do what needs to be done. We weight the body and we sink it to the bottom. You're kidding. I am not, and we need to do it now. Right now, before the sun starts coming up. A moment later, the two of them were hunched over, scouting around the field for stones, rocks, anything that would serve. They must have been at it for a good ten or fifteen minutes. I couldn't bear to watch as they did whatever came next, cram the stones into her pockets, weight her handbag round her neck, something like that. 
When I turned back, Roy was up to his armpits in the muddy water, with Gregory reaching down from the bank to haul him up. When Roy had managed to clamber to the top, Gregory gave him a moment to catch his breath and then said, There's something else that might be useful. I found an old iron gate propped against the hedge over there, but it's seriously heavy. You'll need to help me. I watched as the two of them dragged it across the field to the spot just above where they'd sunk the body. They dropped it with a splash, and then there was a slight fizzing sound as it bubbled down through the thick, silty water. I closed my eyes again, and it was then that I saw her, her long, thin, white face, her waist-length raven-black hair. Now, this was definitely an hallucination, of course it was. She was staring at me through murky brown water, through the bars, the iron bars of the gate. It was the acid, I told myself, the LSD. But the face was the young woman from the pub, the one who'd made such a mess of serving my Guinness on that first night. Those startling blue eyes of hers, staring right at me, imploring me, pleading. A series of large bubbles issued from her mouth as her lips moved frantically. And then she faded and was gone. How long did I have my eyes closed? I had no idea. But when I opened them again, Roy and Gregory were no longer there. I sat down on a beech stump and watched the slow glow of the rising dawn. Had all that really just happened? Something about it felt real, more real than anything else in the world. I stared intently at the dyke, hoping that somehow I could make it cough up its secrets. But the lightening sky seemed to make the water blanker, blacker, more inert than it had been before. It revealed nothing. After a while, I got to my feet, did my best to pull myself together, and made my way back towards the cars, which were easy to see now, no more than a few hundred yards away. As I approached, I could hear a woman's voice. I still can't believe just how badly you both stink. And as I settled down on the edge of the group, I realised that some kind of jocular narrative had been established about how Roy had tumbled into a dyke and Gregory had been obliged to pull him out. I looked slowly around at the others, examining their expressions carefully. Some seemed stunned, exhausted, overwhelmed by the drug, even though its effects were surely wearing off. Roy in particular looked ashen. But others were exhilarated, light-headed to the point of finding everything hilarious. There was certainly no sense that anything tragic had happened, no sense that anyone was missing. In fact, it didn't seem like anything was amiss at all. So, had I actually seen what I thought I'd seen? The longer I thought about it, the less sure of myself I became. The longer I thought about it, the less sure of myself I became. The less sure of myself I became. The less sure of myself I became. I spent the next two days adrift in a fog of confusion. I didn't leave my college house. I barely left my room. Doubt, guilt, paranoia surged through me in wave after wave. What the hell had happened out there? Images from that Saturday night lurked in distant corners of my mind. At random moments, one would rise up and I would freeze in horror, only for it to slip away before I'd had a chance to grasp exactly what it was. 
I could say nothing for certain. Everything constantly shifted and blurred. Snatches of conversation came back to me, as if carried on a breeze. Phrases with no apparent meaning echoed somewhere dimly. After two days of this, I'd had enough. I went back to the pub. I had to. None of the others had any way of getting in touch with me, nor I with them. And I had to know. I had to find out what had happened. The uncertainty was eating me up. I sat by myself at the usual table in the corner of the back room. Roy had said that some of them were there every night, and so I waited a couple of hours. But no one came. Maybe Mondays were an exception, I told myself. I went back the following evening, but once again the pub was almost empty, just a few regulars on stools at the main bar. I kept half an ear on their conversation, but it was fairly desultory stuff, a bit about horse racing, something about the barber down the street, more local tittle-tattle. And then one of the men said, "'When's that new girl back on shift, then?' "'You mean Cathy?' said the landlady. "'Young thing, long dark hair.' "'Oh, she was supposed to be in yesterday, but she never showed up.' "'And no word of explanation.' "'Ah, no. She'll have found another job and moved on.' "'These young people. Oh, it happens. Happens all the time.' The conversation petered out as all the previous ones had. Cathy, so that was her name. I abandoned the rest of my pint and headed for the door. I walked home slowly and tried to think through exactly what this might mean. I reminded myself that I had no grounds whatsoever for believing that hers was the body in the dyke. I had hallucinated her face staring at me through the bars of the iron gate. I was sure of that. In fact, It was entirely possible I had hallucinated the entire incident, and there was nothing to worry about at all. But the anxiety wouldn't leave me. I sat on my bed and turned things over and over, struggling to disentangle what I knew from what I'd imagined. Then one afternoon, I think it was probably Wednesday of that week, I popped out to the local shop, and when I got back, I found Kelvin, the big Scottish guy, sprawled on the living room sofa. "'What are you doing here?' I said. "'One of your hostmates let me in. "'No, I I mean, what do you want?' "'Oh,' he said, as if the question came as a surprise. "'Well, it's about Saturday night.' "'Yes,' I said, trying to sound non-committal. "'You know the girl with the long black hair? "'The barmaid from the Ring of Bells?' "'I held myself together as best I could. "'Not really. "'The thing is, I'm pretty sure I remember her being with us "'out in the fields, don't you?' No, I can't say that I do. Well, I do, said Kelvin. And I was walking past the police station earlier today, and there was her photo on the board outside. Missing person, you know, asking for information. Wherever this was leading, I decided I needed to shut it down there and then. I'm sorry, I said, and and what has this got to do with me? Well, I've always considered myself a good citizen. And the duty of a good citizen is to go in there and tell them what he knows, right? But before I did that, I thought I'd come and have a chat with you. Get your advice. But I hardly know you. Why don't you go and talk to Roy or someone? Well, you're the one with the education and the glittering career in front of you. We stared at each other in silence for a moment. The reason for his visit was beginning to dawn on me. Or maybe I'm just getting all het up about nothing, he resumed. It could be what I need is a damn good holiday. What do you think? I shrugged. That sounds reasonable. Aye, it does to me and all. 
But the problem is, I'm broke. Hundred quid would do it, mind. Get me somewhere nice like Spain for a few weeks. Greece, maybe. He gave me a sly look. You wouldn't be able to loan me the money, would you? What? Why should I? You know, I just want to get away from things. Forget about it all. That's what I dream of. I just want to forget. Do you understand what I'm saying? He gave me another hard stare. I'd never experienced this kind of thing before, but I understood exactly. Anyway, he said, getting up, it's only a hundred quid. I'll be in the ring of bells until closing tomorrow. I left it an hour, and then went and checked the board outside the police station. And Kelvin was right. There she was, Kathleen Angelina Pope, looking a few years younger and with much shorter hair. But there was no doubt about it; she was the barmaid from the Ring of Bells. I hurried off down the road. What shall I do? What the hell shall I do? I needed to think about this logically and calmly. Did I just call Kelvin's bluff? Okay, I had taken an illicit substance, a Class A drug. But how could that be proved after the event? It couldn't be. I was pretty sure of that. And apart from that, what else had I done wrong? Because even if something really bad had happened out there in the fens, and maybe it hadn't, but let's say it had, then in what sense could I possibly be held responsible? I tossed and turned through the night and woke next morning full of dread. I'd been kidding myself, hadn't I? I was a trained medic, for God's sake, and I hadn't even tried to check on her. I mean, perhaps I could have done something. What the hell had I been thinking? No, even if I wasn't directly implicated, I would be stained by association, irredeemably stained. If anyone found out or even suspected, it would be the end of my career, the end before it had even begun. Christ, how would I ever be able to face anyone ever again? I thought of my parents, everything they'd done for me. No, I couldn't afford to take any chances. So, later that morning, I dropped into the Midland Bank and withdrew a hundred pounds from my savings account. I was aware that what I was doing was despicable. What Roy and Gregory had achieved with a few rocks and an iron gate, Kelvin and I would do with an envelope of cash. In our different ways, we were collaborating, the four of us, to erase all trace of that poor young woman's existence. This was a moment that would define me. I told myself, I was no longer the decent, honourable chap that I had always believed myself to be. No, I was a fool, a coward, and many things far worse. It was something I would have to learn to live with. But for now, the overriding priority was not to be found out. I got to the ring of bells soon after eight that evening. The place once again was almost empty, and I found Kelvin on his own at the usual table in the back room. I put the envelope down in front of him. "Good decision, pal," he said. "Will you join me for a pint?" I shook my head. "Can't see I blame you, but whatever may have happened, it's all forgotten now." And he winked at me. "I have no memory of anything whatsoever." You know what I'm saying? I gave him a curt nod, and was about to leave, when a face appeared at the barred window just above his head. My heart gave a thump of recognition. The long, pale face, the raven black hair—it was the barmaid, Kathy, Kathleen, whatever she was called. I felt my body crumple with relief. What the hell? The whole stupid fuss had been about absolutely nothing.
I let out a long sigh and half-raised a hand towards her in greeting. She was staring through the bars in the same disconcerting way as she had looked at me on the first evening, but it occurred to me now that her eyes were no longer the startling blue that I remembered. Perhaps it was just a trick of the light, but they looked darker, much darker, black almost, and seemed to flicker with a dim orange light. "'Hey, pal, are you all right?' Kelvin asked me. I didn't respond, because she suddenly pressed her face up against the bars on the other side of the pane, and I could see her expression change. At first I thought her face was breaking into a smile, but it wasn't. Instead, she drew her lips back, bared her teeth in a vicious snarl, and pressed forward with a sudden violence, as if she was trying to force her way through the window. Kelvin shifted on his stool and asked, "'Is something wrong, pal?' The glass above his head seemed to bulge for a moment, grotesquely magnifying the young woman's contorted features. And then, bang! It shattered with a great crash, showering Kelvin with a cascade of shards and sending fragments flying across the room. What the fuck? he shouted. Involuntarily, I had backed off and found myself cowering next to the jukebox, my face buried in my arms. What the hell do you think you're doing? yelled the landlady, bustling through from the main bar. I pointed dumbly at the broken window, but there was no one behind it now. A faint evening breeze blew in from the alley at the back. Oh, Jesus, said the landlady. Don't tell me it's those damn kids up to their no-good tricks again. And then she turned and stumped back to the main bar, shouting for her husband to come with a broom. The Bard Iron Gate Part 1 was written and performed by Elgin Barrett. Part 2 is now available. Technical presentation was by Malcolm Blackmore and music by John Woz. (laughs) 